It's an honor for me to be with you this morning and bring you greetings on behalf of Global Partners, the missionary arm of the Wesleyan Church. Because of support of churches like this one, today there are people representing Global Partners who will minister in very hard places where a single positive contact or convert is a monumental moment to praise the Lord. There are people who will minister in fertile places where in one country we have been able to plant 109 churches in the last three years and membership has grown from 4,000 to 11,000. We will have people today ministering in house churches where six or eight or ten, perhaps a dozen people will gather together in a living room of a flat somewhere in a restricted access country to worship the Lord together. We will have people today ministering in the largest Wesleyan congregation in the world, which is not in North America. We will have people today ministering in hospitals and Bible colleges and clinics and humanitarian efforts of one kind or another. Ministering far from home and far from the familiar and far from family. And to them we owe a debt of gratitude and to you we owe a debt of gratitude for helping us be in such places. Thank you for what you are doing. I want to express my thanks to Pastor Wes and Coach Lord and others who are part of the mission committee for the invitation to be present. Appreciation to the dean of the chapel for the opportunity to speak there a couple of days ago. And to Larry and Vesta Mullen for their kind hospitality. Actually, his name is really Lawrence from the long ago and far away in eastern Canada. He never became Larry until he moved to these parts. And so, Lawrence and Vesta, thank you for your kind hospitality. Some few years ago, I was speaking at a weekend assignment. Actually, it was a Sunday through Wednesday assignment in a city somewhat to the east of Columbus, Ohio. And on Monday morning, the pastor and his wife were going into Columbus to attend to a variety of items that were on their Monday schedule and asked if I would like to accompany them. And I answered in the affirmative and went. While we were there, we went to tour a place called the COSI, C-O-S-I, the Center of Science and Industry. It traces the agrarian development in Ohio and central United States and other things of interest to some more than others. At the end of the tour through this facility, we came to a room about half the size of this auditorium, and the entire perimeter of the room had uh, computers placed there, where if you chose to, before exiting back into the street, you could take trivia quizzes on, oh, about a half a dozen topics. Select the one you want, take a trivia quiz. Two of us were ordained ministers of the Wesleyan Church, and the third, the pastor's wife, had graduated from Bible college, so we concluded we would pool what turned out to be our ignorance. We would pool our ignorance and select the Bible trivia selection, or the opportunity, so we did. It posed ten questions to us. Remember, they were biblical trivia. I need to tell you, that's what they were in the extreme. I can't really remember any of them, but they were somewhat like, this is a slight exaggeration you'll soon identify, but... Who was Moses' third cousin on his mother's side that had a camel ranch in Libya? Questions kind of like that. We didn't do really well. In fact, at the end, we only had three correct out of ten possibilities. And it gave us the score, big numbers, three out of ten. And then posted this rather insulting little comment at the end. You don't know much about the Bible, huh? And that was our introduction to the COSI. And I need to tell you, I stood there embarrassed. I thought I should know biblical trivia. After all, sometimes we gauge spirituality by those who can tell you which verse of the Bible has the most words in it. 
And so for a while I was embarrassed that I didn't know biblical trivia. But the truth of it is, ladies and gentlemen, knowing biblical trivia proves very little. Living by biblical principle proves very much. From the portion read in your hearing this morning, the first scripture selection, very familiar verses that I suppose anyone who's attempted to preach in a public environment more than a half a dozen times has likely come to these verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we all understand the truth that grace is a golden thread that winds through the Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. And grace is kind of the go-ye-therefore motivator for the evangelism of the world that is the charge to the church. But here in the second passage that was read in your hearing, from Acts chapter 4, at verse 33 in the King James in the Authorized Version, there's a phrase that appears there that appears nowhere else in the entire Scripture. Acts 4.33 in the King James Version says, Great grace was upon them all. The NIV says, Much grace. The New Living Translation says, God's great grace favor. But the King James uses that term that fascinates me significantly. Great grace was upon them all. In Romans, grace is referred to as wonderful. And in 1 Corinthians, it's called overflowing and exceeding. In Galatians, it's called marvelous. And perhaps our most familiar adjective when attached to grace that we have used across the years is the word amazing. The Bible even ends with grace. The very last verse of the very last chapter, the very last book says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen. But here in Acts 4.33 is this fascinating term, great grace. Whenever the word great is used as an adjective, it obviously stands in contrast to something else. You may use the term for your favorite sports team, whoever it may be, they're a great team. Or you may have a great car. Or you may have a great professor, or your professor may wish for great students. But the term great is often used as a qualifier of some kind. Some of you may be fortunate, like me, to have a great wife. But it's a term that stands in contrast to other things. And when you consider it in this context, great grace was upon them all. It makes me ask, are there other kinds of grace? Perhaps regular grace. Or standard grace. Or ordinary grace? Could there even be lesser grace? These words spoken in Acts 4.33, great grace was upon them all, was spoken to a congregation that was noted primarily for three things according to the scriptural account. They were noted that they worshipped together regularly and had all things common. They were generous with with their own needs. They also were people who regularly and with great power, the Bible says, testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they gave of their wealth to support those who were in need. And so here are these people who met together with great power. They testified about the resurrection and they gave of their resources to those who were in need. And of that congregation, the Holy Writ says, great grace was upon them, all of them. Now, great grace, we understand, of course, is the undeserved favor of God. We don't warrant it. We don't merit it. It is God's great gift to us. And this great grace, ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you this morning, has intersected and impacted our lives repeatedly and at many levels. Paul spoke in the text earlier read from Ephesians about the grace that redeemed us. 
and came to us as a gift from God, not through any merit of our own at all. As Will Rogers once cryptically put it, if going to heaven were determined on merit, your dog would get in and you would be kept out. And so you have this top of the food chain grace. This truly great grace is the grace that reached us and redeemed us to his family. But at a secondary or different level, I want to dare to suggest to you this morning there are other great grace realities in the lives of all of us in this room this morning. There are other great grace realities that carry with them great responsibility. Grace is free. It's undeserved. It does not come through any merit of our own, but it does not relieve us of responsibility. It may be free, but it is not, as Bonhoeffer suggested, cheap. And so great grace has come to us that brings with, us, brings with it great responsibility. And I believe with all of my heart that that responsibility for those of us who live in the North American part of the world, it finds its true expression in reaching beyond ourselves to others who have, in a sense, if you'll permit this, been recipients of lesser grace. Now, before you condemn me as a heretic and remembering that grace is undeserved favor and that I'm leaving town this afternoon, consider with me for just a moment some of the reasons of great grace that have come to us. Great grace, because of the place of my birth, because of the place of my birth, and yours too, I suspect. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has recently stated that unsafe water, this is safe, unsafe water kills a child in the world every 15 seconds. That's four per minute. 240 children will die from unsafe water while we sit in this very worship service, but not in my neighborhood. There are one billion people in the world, three times the population of the United States, and 30 times the population of Canada who cannot do what I just did, take a mouthful of fresh water, for they have no access to safe water. One billion people, one in every six in the world, but not in my neighborhood. Swaziland's little landlocked country, sandwiched between the Republic of South Africa and Mozambique, for the most part, and southeastern Africa. It may disappear as a nation, the UN has told us, by as recently or by as near future as 2015. Oh, the landmass would still be there, but the infrastructure and the population may be so ravaged by disease that as a functioning country, this monarchy ruled by King Maswati III may in fact cease to exist within the next 10 years or less. 39% of the adult population is said to have the HIV positive. And it's felt that that number actually is quite conservative. And the country is full. I've seen this with my own eyes. The country is full of single and double orphans. I confess to you, double orphan was a new term to me. Double orphan are those children who have lost both parents to AIDS. And the country is full of them, scattered in massive numbers all across that little country, but not in my neighborhood. Stalin reminded us that a million deaths is a statistic. One death is a tragedy. And the numbers are mind-numbing. The impact is crushing just because of where they were born. We have a missionary family serving in a restricted access country. They are there today, this man, his wife, and their three children. 
A few weeks ago, one of their young children came down with a physical ailment and the best medical care available in that immediate context, thought it was some sort of renal failure, perhaps, and that we needed to find medical care at a higher level of capability. And so relying on the people who help us with uh, ex- uh, evacuating folks in desperate situations, we got in contact with them. To make a long story very short, it took us 48 hours across six countries and three visas for this father to get his young son to good medical care. When I need it, I dial 911 and wait five minutes. The place of my birth. It's also the principles of my culture. The U.S. State Department has informed us that their best estimate is that during this very year, 12 million people, 12 million people will be trafficked into some form of slavery in 2008. More people than were trafficked in slavery during the entire Atlantic slave trade of the 19th century over which the U.S. Civil War was fought. More this year than all of that entire time slice of history together, but not in my neighborhood. About two-thirds of the world's captive labor, somewhere between 15 and 20 million people, are debt slaves. They own a debt that we would, they have a debt that we would all consider to be small and not of much consequence, but because they cannot pay it. The head of the household or the spouse or one of the children has been taken into indentured servitude and serve as slaves, primarily India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal, and in other places, but not in my country, not in my neighborhood. I have walked down streets where there were brothels. Some of these brothels, children as young as 8 and 10 years of age, are sold into those brothels, and the owners are protected by the police, not prosecuted by them. But not in my neighborhood. There's the prosperity of my times. During a recent visit to Swaziland, I spent some time with a young Wesleyan pastor there named Walter Malaza. He pastors a couple of small churches near Manzini. He has feeding stations in which he feeds between six and 700 orphans, single or double, two meals a day, five days a week. I went to the feeding stations. I sat on the ground with the children. One place, no building at all, just in the open space. Sat on the ground with the children and observed the small, meager food that they had, for which they seemed much more thankful than most people I bump into in this side of the ocean, and watched what Walter was doing in those places and was desperately impacted by what I saw, but I don't see that in my neighborhood. We have a pastor serving in another environment who said he was heartbroken to come home and find his own children licking pictures of food in a cookbook because they were so hungry, but not in my neighborhood. And then there's the peace of my surroundings. You know the stories. Child soldiers take uppers this morning to counteract the downers they took last night to go to sleep and go as part of their killing squads. We knew more of this a few, a few years ago, but it still happens in parts of the world where goon squads run around and amputate limbs from people merely because of the tribe you belong to. Oh, you're from western New York. Put your arm up against this tree. I'm going to cut your hand off. But not in my neighborhood. When I got up this morning to drive to church, I never once considered whether I might run over top of an IED that would destroy my vehicle and maybe take away my life. An improvised explosive device. But there are people wearing the uniform of this country who may die just like that today. But not in my neighborhood. Because we're people of great grace. Undeserved, 
totally undeserved favor of God because of what one person dared to call the accident of birth. The great grace of my circumstances and surroundings. Here's the point. It demands a response. The great grace we have experienced, then we need to be people who extend great grace to others. As Jeff Greenway put it in a book he wrote not so long ago, God's call upon us as Christians is not just a call to repentance and faith. It's a call to allegiance, to allegiance above all other allegiances and a loyalty that trumps all other loyalties. Great grace. And great grace must lead us to good works. That's what comes next. Great grace leads to good works. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 that I read a while ago, most all of us have tried to preach from it, I suppose, several times. We've ever been done much preaching. But verse 10, the one that follows, frankly, had never had much of my attention. To do good works will be thwarted by circumstances, local realities, or other things that could somehow discourage you. I've been involved in a situation that had ministry among the street children in Odessa, Ukraine, and other cities in the oblast around Odessa, and have been there seven or eight times, I think. On one of those occasions, my wife Glory was with me, and we were in a small orphanage. It would be a term we would use, not an acceptable term in their culture, but we would call it that. We spent most of the day there, and the older children came home from school, and then we were going to have the evening meal, borscht and whatever else came along with it. And we sat down with these children to do so, and we were sort of sitting around the perimeter of the room, and a little girl about four or five years of age came over and turned around and backed right up against my wife, Gloria's her name, right up against Gloria's legs, just backed right up against her. In any language of the world, that means, pick me up, please. Gloria picked her up, put her arms around her. The little girl turned her head back and looked up toward Gloria and said something in Russian. And the interpreter leaned forward and said in my wife's ear, she said, you can have me if you want me. Did I want to put her in my suitcase? You can bet your last dollar on it. Well, actually, you shouldn't do that if you're a good Wesleyan. But you can be certain that that's exactly what I wanted to do, bring her home in my suitcase. But local laws and international regulations did not make that possible. So my impulse in that moment to do good works could not be done. But that did not release me from the responsibility to help support those who are helping her. You understand? So if sometimes you start to do your good works and you're thwarted, don't give up. Look for another avenue, for another channel through which God may in his wonderful grace use you. In a book entitled The Twilight of Authority, the author said this, as a society becomes increasingly complex, parenthetically like ours, as the society becomes increasingly complex, individuals become overtaxed and unable to integrate all the loyalties in their lives. In order to gain control of their inner world, they're forced to narrow the range of their commitments and narrow their interests. Almost all of us in this room have schedules that seem to be controlling us rather than us controlling them. And when it becomes necessary to narrow in our commitments and narrow the range of our interests, I am committed myself and I plead with you as people of great grace that when life pressures you and you must narrow in, please don't drop your good works in the Master's name because you're too busy doing things of lesser importance. I want very much for us to belong to the clan of the woman who anointed Christ's feet for burial, about whom one translation says she has done everything she could. You know, it came as a rather a vivid 
lesson to me when it became obvious that with the change in my pocket, I could change someone's life. One half the people in the world, that's about three billion people, one half the people in the world live on less than $2 a day. There are many people here who have $2 in change in their pocket. And it was an amazing lesson to me when I understood for that little bit of change, I could actually change someone's life. You men, many of you have $2 in your pocket. You ladies likely have $2 in your purse but can't find it. My wife's purse is an amazing piece of equipment. It has more things in it than a suitcase requiring two men to carry. But there it is, and she can always find stuff in it. And somewhere down at the bottom, I dare say there's a couple dollars worth of change. And you understand just that little bit can change someone. Do you, want, do you grasp that idea? You can change a life for what we throw away. It's incredible to me. And so great grace inspires good works. A poet caught it when he said, Oh God, when I have food, help me remember the hungry. When I have work, help me remember the jobless. When I have a warm home, help me remember the homeless. When I'm without pain... Help me remember those who suffer and remembering. Help me to destroy my complacency and bestir my compassion. Make me concerned enough to help by word and deed those who cry out for what so many of us take for granted. And so great grace leads to good works, which leads to get going. Getting going is the difference between something must be done and I must do something. It's the realization, ladies and gentlemen, we were not just saved from sin, we were saved for service. The writer to Ecclesiastes rather pointedly put it, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you are going, there's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. And so great grace can be understood, and good works can be mentally embraced. You can absorb those things cognitively, but there comes a time for doing. A time for understanding that if he has changed us, we can, in fact, help change the world. What an awesome privilege. What an honor. What a responsibility. For I read in a very reliable book to whom much is given. Much shall be required. If you're ever called upon to serve on a college or university board of trustees, the board chair or college president who comes to see you will be looking for at least two of the three W's, wealth, work, and wisdom. If you have all three, you're signed up today. If you can provide any two of those three, you're going to have a fairly serious conversation likely, wealth, work, and wisdom. But at least two of those are expected if you're going to be on a board of trustees or a college or university. And fulfilling the Great Commission requires that every one of us, I believe as believers, embrace two of the three basic ingredients of fulfilling the Great Commission, which were mentioned in the pastoral prayer this morning and on the little DVD you saw. Pray, give, and go. Every one of us must embrace at least two of those and perhaps all three. We all surely can pray and giving and going, sometimes for a short term, sometimes for a lifetime. And you know, giving, we often think of in terms of money, dollars, resources. But for some of us, it may mean giving up a career and go to do what our spirit tells us we should be doing. For others, it may mean giving up the dreams for your children 
so that they may follow God's call upon their lives and we will celebrate it, not mourn it. My wife and I have two children and going through that whole process of saying, God, whatever you might want to do with them is okay with me, that's quite a little process actually. And now our two children with their spouses have produced four grandchildren. That's another whole level of something. I used to think grandparents were kind of disgusting and kind of syrupy, you know. They had their little stories and they had their pictures and frankly it bored me nearly to death. I tried to act marginally courteous. That was about the limit of it. Now I have pictures and I have stories and now I think grandparents are kind of cute actually. It's amazing how that's changed. I've come to agree with whoever it was that first said, grandchildren are your reward for not killing your kids. Someday I might have to say to God, I'm ready to say it now. If you call my grandson, he's just a baby. The two of them are just, the two grandsons are just, they're just small children, all of these. But if you call any of my grandchildren into ministry, no matter what dreams I might have for them to be a lawyer, a doctor, who knows what. If you're called to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. And I would give them up. That may be part of giving. It may have nothing to do with your money. It may have to do with your dreams for others in your family. But we must pray and we must give and we must go. For one day we will answer for these things at the judgment, don't you see? And I want us to be people like the people of Acts 4.33. They were great grace people. The Bible says so. They met together freely. They testified publicly and repeatedly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they gave of their resources to look after people who didn't have resources. Great grace people are world changers. Wouldn't you like to be one? Would you stand with me, please? The closing this morning is just slightly out of pattern to the printed bulletin. I'm going to share with you now, in just a moment, a Franciscan benediction. I borrowed it from Phil Yancey, who had it in his troubling book, Does Prayer Make Any Difference? I want you to listen to this, and then we will shortly be dismissed. May God bless you with discomfort and easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger and injustice and oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice and freedom and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain and rejection and hunger and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness and truth to all of our children and to the poor. Amen. In a moment, ladies and gentlemen, I challenge you to go and be a world changer, a person of great grace.